Well, we're going to continue the morning in worship uh, with a little bit of prayer. Uh, We're going to pray for an unreached people group. We're going to pray for uh, a church in our community. And then we're going to pray for our time this morning. The local church that we're going to pray for is Covenant Fellowship. Um, Full disclosure, I know nothing about Covenant Fellowship other than what their website says. Um, Lead pastor Todd Barnes, wife Sabrina Barnes, um, and ministry team Brad Strand and Vicki Reed. We're just so thankful in this city to have a ton of different churches, Um, so let's definitely lift those up in prayer. Um, And then the unreached people groups. Uh, We are going to pray for the Korean folks, uh, specifically the Korean folks of North Korea. Um, This is a really, really, really dark place. Um, I learned all about North Korea, how I learned about everything via a podcast. Um, And so I listened to a podcast about this and, man, the government is so, so oppressive there. They tell them, they tell the people what they can do, what they can eat, where they can go, uh, what they can actually, like, like, if they can go to high school or not. You know, you have to apply uh, to go to high school in North Korea. And so um, it's a really, really dark place. They do not claim a religion at all. Uh, 1.6% are uh, Christians, so there's that. Uh, so let's go ahead and join in prayer for these people this morning. Father God, you were so, so good. Um, we praise you over and over, God. We, uh, we praise you that we are here uh, gathered together this morning. We praise you that we can lift up another church in our community. Um, God, we just ask that you be with Covenant Fellowship this morning. Uh, we ask that you just bathe that place in your Holy Spirit, Father, that, um, that you get the glory there this morning, God, that uh, they are uh, singing and praising and worshiping you um, in a way uh, that just uh, is beautiful to your ears, Father. Um, God, we, just thank you, thank, we are thankful for so many churches in this community. Uh, we are thankful that we get to partner uh, with these churches, God. Um, and we ask that you just uh, grow the bond between Crosspoint Fellowship and Covenant Fellowship uh, for your glory here in Greenville, Texas, God. Also, we pray for uh, the Korean folks of North Korea. Um, God, we, uh, we don't know what it's like to be there, God. We don't know all, that, uh, all the inner workings of the Korean government and the issues there. We don't know what, um, what the political climate is or the spiritual climate is, Father, but you do. Um, and God, we just lift these people up this morning. God, burden our hearts for the North Koreans. Uh, burden our hearts uh, to whether that be go there or pray for them, um, or uh, just, God, we're just begging you to, to do a mighty work in North Korea. Um, we ask that you get glory there this morning, even if it's only from 1% of the people, God, but that you turn that 1% into 2%, into 3%, um, in, in a way that only you can, Father. Um, so we just ask that you give us uh, that heart um, that, that you readily give for your people in North Korea, God, um, and we just praise you for um, for that 1.6% that you have called. Um, God, and I ask that you be here this morning. God, I ask that you expose your word um, wonderfully. God, I ask that you uh, give us open hearts and open ears and just eyes to see as you see, God. Um, we just thank you so much for giving us a word that we can dive into, Father, that, that your living and breathing word can change our life. God, we ask that you equip us uh, this morning as we sing songs to you, God, as we dive into your written word, Father, um, and as we pray and honor you, um, and lastly, as we uh, dine with you at the supper, Father. 
God, we love you. We love you. We love you. It's in your holy name we pray. Amen. Well, so this morning, there's not going to be a whole lot of like theological gymnastics. It's going to be a straightforward, straightforward like gospel and theology 101. Like we're going to run the ball for four quarters. Like straight up roll tide Alabama four quarters football. Some of you got that reference. I see you back there, Daniel. Some of you got it. Some of you are like, I don't get it at all. Just know that this morning is going to be somewhat cliche and basic, and it's going to be awesome. So what does the morning look like? Uh, we're going to talk a little bit about Palm Sunday, because that is today. And then we're going to uh, do a little bit of intro into the passage that we have this morning. Then we're going to read our passage. Then we're going to do a little bit of exposition of our passage. And then we're going to have one single application point. Literally one single application point. That's it. Super simple morning. Then we're going to take the supper. And before I let all of you guys down, I do want to set this up for, or I, I, gotta, I guess I kind of want to like set you guys' expectation. I don't have a timeline. I don't have a slideshow. I don't have any videos or anything like that. Like that was the only slide you get this morning. But, I know, I know, you're floored, I get it. Uh, but I am going to tell a couple of cool stories, so hopefully that makes up for it. Um, so, Palm Sunday. Today is Palm Sunday. If you haven't noticed uh, these palm leaves or uh, palm fronds, as they're called, I learned that this week, pretty cool thing. Um, and that's why I'm wearing a pineapple shirt, because pineapple is the closest thing I have to palm leaves. I'll fix that next year. Um, but... Uh, it is Palm Sunday, and why, why do we celebrate Palm Sunday? What's the significance of Palm Sunday? Well, we commemorate this day, uh, the day that Jesus rode into Jerusalem on a donkey's colt, okay? And so that's a really, really big deal. Basically, if I could paint the picture, you've got Jesus riding in on a young donkey, and you've got these crowds around Jesus, right? who are shouting at Jesus, and they're throwing palm leaves in the road that he's walking on. They're throwing their coats down in the road, symbolizing this royal entrance of a savior and king. All the while, he's riding on a donkey's colt. So why is that significant? Why is a donkey's colt such a big deal? Well, for two reasons. First reason, uh, it was prophesied. In the Old Testament, it was prophesied that he, or that he, he rode in on a young donkey. So that's just one more way that Christ fulfilled the old covenant. The second reason, something that we here have a little bit hard time, and I'm not talking about we as in Crosspoint Fellowship, I'm talking about we as in the United States of America, have a very hard time knowing and understanding is that Israel was occupied by Rome. Israel at this time, the Jewish people were actually under martial law with Rome. So walking down the streets in Jerusalem, you would have Roman soldiers dressed in full Roman hoplite garb with, you know, swords. I guess it would kind of be like walking in every block, there being, you know, a cop with an AR-15 or something like that. So this was an occupied area. It wasn't exactly resort living for the Jewish folks. And so what they had imagined in their brain for a Messiah was this great warrior savior king type that would ride in on a steed, just clad in armor, pulling out swords, and just chop down all the Romans, right? But instead, what they got was Jesus riding a young donkey 
not this fabled steed, right? A young donkey. And if I'm kind of picturing this, I'm thinking Jesus' feet are like barely off the ground. Like maybe he's even like helping the donkey. I don't know. But this is what they certainly were not expecting. But it is definitely the Jesus that they needed. It was his triumphal entry into the city of Jerusalem. And that's a big deal because it really kicks off Holy Week. And it's so Holy Week is what we will celebrate this week. Um, and Krista Sherman sent out an email about some packets that you guys can pick up. And if you want to walk through Holy Week, uh, it's really cool. Every day of the week uh, is a different event that occurred leading up to uh, the death and resurrection of Jesus. And so Holy Week is, uh, is bookended by Easter, right? When we celebrate, and we celebrate the risen king. And so we'll do that next week. But um, today, like I said, uh, is Palm Sunday. So whenever you're walking around our facility today, whenever you're walking through the kids' building or, or walking around here, and you see these palm leaves or palm fronds, one might say, um, just kind of remember that story. Uh, take, take in. Um, I hope that we remember uh, the Savior's triumphal entry. I hope that we join in the crowd shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna to our king and acknowledge how badly we need him. That's the whole idea is how badly we need him. So Hosanna, they were shouting Hosanna in the highest, right? Um, Hosanna is an interesting word. Uh, I kind of had to look into it this week because full disclosure, you know, uh, I've been going to church for for a while and I had no idea really what Hosanna, but I'm sitting here, Hosanna, you know? Uh, But it is just merely a word of praise, right? You were saying, praise be to Christ. But there's also this interesting um, kind of sub-meaning of the word. It, it means, it's, it's like needy. It's a very, very needy word. It's saying, yes, Christ is here. We need him. We need him to be a savior. So as we're you know, walking around, I kind of hope you're seeing those palm fronds and thinking, wow, thank God for our savior and then kind of also remember how much we need him. I also, I also hope that we remember the price that he paid on this Friday about 2,000 years ago. At about 3 p.m. was in, when Christ was crucified. So that's kind of a big deal. I hope we consider the true love that was shown for us by our Savior on that day. St. Augustine himself said, God loves us as if Uh, God loves all of us as if there were simply only one of us. And I hope we remember that truth this morning. So it is by no accident that we're here in 1 John chapter 4. Verse 7 through 21 is a description of love that is literally unparalleled by any other passage in the Bible. And today we're specifically going to talk about verses 7 through 12. So over about the next three weeks, we are going to be diving headfirst into a study of love. But before we get into that, before we actually start reading, I think we have to understand a little bit of context just to make sure we're all rowing in the same direction. Uh, Last week, we talked about false prophets and deceivers. Uh, When when these false prophets and uh, deceivers, when they denied that Jesus was Messiah, They said they were speaking from God. And John tells us to test those spirits. He says, if anyone claims to speak on God's behalf, but doesn't focus on Jesus, the crucified Son of God, 
then they do not speak from God. See, the litmus test that we talked about last week is Christ. The litmus test is Christ. God's true children will center their whole life around the crucified and risen Jesus because that is where God reveals his love. And so that's where we're going to pick up today. But there's also one more thing that we got to kind of, kind of parse out. And we covered this about four and a half months ago with Morris, but it's time to bring it back up. Um, it's really important who wrote the book of John. It's really important. And if you had to guess, what would you say? It's John, right? It's not a trick question. It's John. John, the son of Zebedee. Now, there is a little bit of debate on, well, you know, maybe John didn't write it and stuff like that between the heady theologians, but I would say uh, that it's pretty clear. Now, they have that debate because he doesn't say, I, John, son of Zebedee, have written this letter to you in the letter, but the evidence is really, really clear that it was John, son of Zebedee, and why is that such an important fact? Well, um, it's because John, the son of Zebedee, uh, was also a brother, James, and he was part of Jesus's inner circle. We've got Peter, James, and John. Anytime that Jesus was doing anything crazy, it was guaranteed that Peter, James, and John were there. They were there uh, with him basically the longest of the apostles. Um, they were there with him during the transfiguration. They were there with him when he raised Jairus' daughter from the dead. They were there whenever he went and prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane. Um, they were really, really, really close with Jesus. They witnessed some of the greatest moments, but they also witnessed some of the absolute darkest moments. So I think it's very, very important that we, um, that we tease out that this person that is writing this letter, and he himself so humbly put in the beginning of 1 John, that he walked with, talked with, heard from, and touched the very Savior that we at Crosspoint Fellowship believe in. This was someone who was very, very, very close to Jesus. Now, um, there's a little bit more to this story. So he was so close to Jesus that Jesus gave him and his brother a nickname. Like, we're talking old school like football locker room nickname. In Mark 3.17, he calls them the Sons of Thunder. I always thought that was the most rad nickname ever. Come on, Sons of Thunder, right? And so the question would be, why was he called Sons of Thunder, or why were they called Sons of Thunder? And so we kind of have to do a little bit of, of, you know, looking into the text, but um, it's pretty common that Jesus has an affinity towards people that are maybe a little bit hot-headed. And so that's a huge relief to me, for sure. Um, you know, look at Peter, James, and John, right? Two of those were the thuns of, thuns of, sons of thunder, the thuns of thunder. Um, and then the other one, um, Peter, was not exactly what I would call level-headed either. So that's kind of interesting. But in Luke 9, there's this story where, uh, where the disciples are all headed through Samaria, which is a big deal, and we'll talk about that in a little bit, but they're heading through Samaria to get to Jerusalem, and they stop at a town to basically stay for the night, but the villagers of that town started shouting insults and were giving them a very, very hard time because of the prejudice between Jewish people and the Samarians, 
and it was a big deal that they were heading to Jerusalem, which is like the holy of holiest cities, and matched with this, um, this prejudice, it was basically about, there was a brawl that was about to break out, right? And so what does the sons of thunder stand up and do? They say in, I believe it is Luke 9, um, they say, Lord, do you want us to call fire down from heaven and destroy them? And so that really escalated quickly. I mean, that got out of hand quick. I think we all know these type of people that like, you know, it's like, oh man, he looked at me, let's break his legs. And you're thinking, no, that's not what we should do at all. Like that's, that's not how we handle this. So what does the Lord do? Jesus himself says, now, nah, James and John, this is not a good, dea, a good idea. That's just going to cause a mess everywhere. Let's just go to the next town. Okay, so we've got this, this one of these brothers who wanted to rain down fire to destroy these people just for, I don't know, making fun of or giving a hard time to the disciples. We have this very same guy imploring us as Christians to love one another. So we've got this disposition change. We've got this change in posture, and I think we really have to keep that in mind whenever we read this. He changed his stance. So with that being said, let's go ahead and dig into our passage. If you don't mind, please stand for the reading of God's word. We'll be in 1 John 4, 7 through 12. Beloved, let us love one another. For love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. In this love, not that we have loved, but God, that he, but God, God but that he loved, us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. So to kind of peel back the onion just a little bit more, we kind of have to go a little bit deeper into the background. Remember, uh, this is a letter being written to a church that was divided, right? We've got these deceivers that have come in, and they've gone out from the church, and they're actively trying to recruit people from within the church. And we have a previous son of thunder putting a whole lot of effort into love. As a matter of fact, in verses 7 through 21 alone, there are 27 times where the word love, agape, is used. 27 times. And on two other times, he calls these people beloved, one who are loved. So 29 times in a small verse, this previous son of thun thunder is, a, is approaching the topic of love. So what does that mean? I think the evidence is pretty clear. We're dealing with some churches that have a very, very, very big problem. There is a lack of love for one another. 
There's a lack of love for one another. This church is at risk. I'm not saying this church. I'm saying the churches, the house churches in Ephesus that this letter is written to is at risk of being a loveless church. They're absolutely at risk of being a loveless church. So to kind of climb into this story a little bit, imagine that there was a church that had correct doctrine. Their doctrine was awesome. They passed the doctrine test with ease. They believe every single word of the Bible. Now imagine that this church lived great moral lives. They lived extremely righteously. They kept God's law to the letter of the law. They passed the moral test with ease, and they live righteously. Now imagine how that church would look if there was little to zero love for one another. If they had no love for one another, how hollow and empty and lifeless that church would be. Their doctrinal exactness and moral rigor without love are nothing. So 1 Corinthians chapter 13 is another great passage on defining love. It's a phenomenal passage, and what that tells us is no matter what gift, no matter how amazing your spiritual blessing is, no matter how awesome this little subset of, of gifts you have in your repertoire are, if you don't have love, it means absolutely nothing. It means absolutely nothing. So the questions, what is love? Where does love come from? How do you keep loving even when it's hard? What does love look like? So John has some pretty clear answers in verses 7 through 21, and so we'll talk about that through the next three weeks. But let's dive into, uh, well, I guess whenever we dive into 7 through 12, we'll kind of expose that a little bit. But there is another story, the last one, I promise. There is another story that I think we have to go to to understand this kind of meaning of love and where it comes from. And if you have any church background whatsoever, if you have any experience in church, you are very, very familiar with this story. Remember, we're not doing any theological gymnastics or anything like that. Um, if you haven't grown up in church, you still probably know this story. So if you, I'm going to tell it, but if you want to follow along, please do so. Uh, it's in Luke 10, 25 through 37. Luke 10, 25 through 37. It's the story of the Good Samaritan. Everybody knows it, right? Everybody knows it. It's basically one of the most amazing love thy neighbor stories of all time. So it starts like this. An expert of the law stood up to test Jesus. And he said, teacher, what must I do to have eternal life? Teacher, what must I do to have eternal life? It's a very straightforward answer, right? But what he's trying to do is trying to catch Jesus off guard a little bit. And Jesus does what Jesus does. He said, well, what's written in the law? He answers his question with another question. What's written in the law? How do you read it? How do you interpret the law? And it was kind of funny, the Lent reading this morning, I had no idea what it was. But uh, coming from Deuteronomy, this, uh, this teacher of the law, or this, this, this lawyer, um, said, well, it's easy. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind. And oh yeah, uh, love your neighbor as yourself. Pretty simple. He gave the perfect textbook answer. I mean, this guy knows everything there is to know about the law, and he gave, I mean, he could quote it uh, just, just verse right there. So this is exactly what you do. So Jesus said, 
You answered correctly. Uh, now do this, and you will live. Do this, and you will live. So, what happens next? The lawyer wanting to, keyword, justify himself, he says, who is my neighbor? Pretty simple thing. Hey, who's my neighbor? Who do I got to love around here? And Jesus proceeds to tell one of the most amazing stories of all time. So, you've got a man, and he's walking from Jericho to Jerusalem, or Jerusalem to Jericho, I can't remember, one of the two. It's the same road, going and coming. Um, anyway, you've got a man walking, and then you've got, if you know anything about this road, which I didn't until this week, it's fraught full of caverns and rocks and all kinds of good places to hide. And so you've got these robbers who would camp out, hide there. When they see somebody walking alone, they'd rob out, or like jump out and mug them. So this man that was walking got mugged. He got stripped, he got beaten, he got thrown in a ditch, half dead. Well, and then robbers just took off running, right? And so you've got this priest walking. Jesus? Oh, okay. Anyway, you got this priest walking, right? Um, and so the priest sees what happens. And what does he do? That's crazy. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah, you got these priests walking. And what they do, this priest does, is he gets on the other side of the road and he takes off running. Basically, he sees this guy, he's like, not today. I'm not dealing with it. And then you've got this Levite come. And you're like, finally, a Levite. Maybe there's hope, right? This Levite, another holy man, jumps on the other side of the road, keeps on running as well. They completely avoid this guy. And then you have a Samaritan, right? And this Samaritan comes sees what happened, assesses the situation, does what a great Samaritan would do, hops down, bandages the guy up, pour, or I guess he says, it says he has compassion on him, he bandages him up, he pours oil and wine all over him, probably because the guy stank and he wanted to like clean him up a little bit. He took him to the inn that was nearby, took care of the guy for the night, and then the very next day threw down a whole bunch of money to the innkeeper and said, basically, take care of this guy. Take care of him. And by the way, if you spend more than this, spend more than this two days wage, then I'll reimburse you. I'll reimburse you. So we've got this great story of how this guy loves uh, his neighbor. And so Jesus asked, which one of these do you think proved to be the neighbor to the man that got mugged? And the lawyer responds, the obvious answer, the one who showed mercy on him. The one who showed mercy on him. And Jesus said, go and do the same. And so if you read this at a superficial level, you're like, oh, that's a, a great feel-good story. But uh, one commentator, uh, David Platt, kind of tells it a little bit deeper like this. He says, in the story, you have a man trying to justify himself, asking, who is my neighbor? In other words, this guy wanted to know Am I doing enough to live an eternal life? Am I doing enough to live an eternal life? And this is the key to the story that Jesus tells. You see, the priest knows, the priest knows for a fact in Leviticus 19 and 34, God's law says if you meet a stranger in need, do whatever that need is. Meet that need. But the priest sees what happens and he sprints off in the other direction. Likewise, a Levite, who was an assistant to a priest, another holy man, 
does the exact same thing. So the irony is clear. The two leaders among the people of God who are charged with helping the needy actually ignore the needy. But then, as the tension thickens, Jesus inserts the most shocking twist. Three words, that's it. But a Samaritan. But a Samaritan. But an outsider. A person who Jewish people would absolutely hate because they believe that these Samaritans polluted the line of God's people. As a matter of fact, when Jewish leaders uh, wanted to discredit Jesus, or they wanted to offend Jesus, they would call him a Samaritan. So when Jesus mentions this word, Samaritan, you can kind of see the lawyer's blood start to bubble a little bit. Well, the story continues, and the Samaritan takes care of the man, and he foots the bill. And by the end of the story, Jesus totally transformed the question. You see, the lawyer asked, whom do I need to love? And the question now becomes, who is the one doing the loving? And get this, the lawyer can't even bring himself to say the Samaritan, right? He says, the one who showed mercy on him. He didn't say the Samaritan, he said the one who showed mercy on him. You see, over the course of this short story, Jesus stuns the man from the religious elite into realizing that the law or what the law means when it talks about love. What the law means when it talks about love. It is something that is far deeper than religious knowledge or religious responsibility. The kind of love that God's law elicits is much greater, much riskier, and much more uncomfortable than this lawyer was willing to admit. This is not just a story about helping people in need without prejudice. I want you to hear that. This is not just a story about helping people in need without prejudice. Because if that would be the case, then Jesus might have said, okay, a Jewish man was walking, and then a Samaritan in the ditch got mugged, and this Jewish man reached down and without any prejudice at all helped him. That would have been the story, but that wasn't. That wasn't the story that Jesus is communicating. The meaning of that story would have been clear, regardless of what you think. Help people in need. Instead, Jesus takes the lawyer on a journey, and he shows them the failure that the religious elite actually had in keeping the law. Showed that failure in the religious elite keeping the law. Then he brings up a Samaritan to expose this deep-seated hatred that the lawyer had towards the Samaritans. And in the process, Jesus makes his point very, very clear. This lawyer needs a new heart. He needs a change of heart, just like we all do. There's a kind of love for God and for others that simply cannot be manufactured by religion or by religious learning. We need a new heart. And that's kind of the purpose of this story of the Good Samaritan. So with that being said, I'm going to reread verses 7 through 12 in that light of 1 John 4. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, 
that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this love, not that, we, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation of our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. Why do we love people? What makes us love people? The answer is not why, but the answer is who. Verse seven, beloved, let us love one another for the love is from God and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. You see, verse seven tells us where we find love, especially when it's not easy. It comes directly from him. He changes our heart. We don't have to muster anything. We just have to lean into verse eight. And verse eight says, anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. Verse eight tells us to keep loving. We lean on him because love comes from him. And verse seven and eight together tell us that knowing God produces love because love is an outflow of God's own inner character. God is love, and everyone born of God in the resurrection of Jesus bears a family resemblance to him. Romans 8, 29, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed in the likeness of his son, in order that we might be the firstborn among many brothers. What he's doing is calling us to a family resemblance of him. Verses 9 and 10, in this, in this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. You see, verse 9 and 10 tells us that God led by example. He gave us everything to show us that everything is all that it takes. Love isn't an attribute or an emotion Love takes action. It takes the kind of action that Jesus took. You see, haters kill their brothers. Lovers lay down their life for their brothers. And then verse 11. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Verse 11 gives us this insight into John, one of the sons of thunder who is wholly captured by this love that he is calling us to. In verse 12, no one has ever seen God if we love one another, God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. And verse 12, verse 12 is a doozy. Verse 12 is telling us that if we are captured by this love, then we also ought to love, and he will love through us. In other words, we will radically love others, and in doing so, we will show them Christ. Love is the visibility of of the invisible God. Love is the visibility of the invisible God. Love is visible and tangible and audible in the love of his church. Love is not optional for believers in God's church. And I'll say that again. Love is not optional for believers in God's church. So, one application. Simple. It's a quick morning. One application. Do you love 
the people of God? Do you love the people of God? Does this kind of love go beyond all religious learning or any sense of religious responsibility? Why are you here? Is it just because this is the checkbox? And I'm not asking if you feel well disposed towards the people here. I'm not asking if you smile to them when you walk by. Do you actually and actively love them? Do you, do you use your hands for them? Do you use your money for them? Do you use your speech for them? If not, perhaps we need to take a second and reflect and try to understand the love that God has for us. And John is saying if we understand that love that God has for us, then we ought to love one another. After all, there is a lot riding on that. John 13, 34 through 35 says this. As soon as I get there. John 13, 34 through 35. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Let's pray. God, you are so, so good. Your love is so vast and indescribable. We ask that you give us a heart for your people. We ask that you mobilize us to love one another in a way that is just undeniable to the community around us. We ask that you take us, your children, who have different backgrounds and come from different places and are in all different walks of life, we ask that you bond us over to you. Teach us, O oh God, what it truly means to love. Make our love missional. We thank you for this season. We thank you for this season of Lent. We thank you for Palm Sunday. We thank you for the, um, the activities that this commemorates. We thank you for your son's triumphal entry into a city that became an instrument for your wrath, but is also an instrument for your glory. Today we shout Hosanna, praise and need. Holy Spirit, equip us and guide us this week. It is in your name, Jesus, that we pray. Amen.